as you've already, whoa, the voice of power. All right, turn me down a little bit there. As you've already heard, today we begin four Sundays of Advent, looking forward to Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Jesus. This year for Advent, for the sermons, we're going to be looking at four Christmas songs, and I put that in quotes in the book of Luke. These are not like the Christmas carols we just sang. These are the words of Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and then Simeon that we find in the book of Luke. But before we look at the Christmas story, I think it's very important for us to look back and remember that for 400 years leading up to the first Christmas, God had not sent a prophet to speak to the nation of Israel. And here is what had happened before that led up to this. God had taken the nation of Israel and sent them into exile in Babylon. He'd done it because of their rebellion not just one thing, not just one week or one year, but year after year after year. And he had warned them hundreds of years before that in terms of how God would deal with them on the earth, this is what he would do. And so they're in, in Babylon, in exile, and then God made a way for them to return to the land. And when they did, only a small portion returned. Out of the, the millions that left, only forty to 45,000 returned. The rest were comfortable where they were. And you find out that the people who did return were rather fickle towards God. So God spoke through the prophet Malachi. He corrected both the, the people and the priests. And during the next 400 years, the nation of Israel was a vassal. That means they paid taxes and they were ruled by the Persian Empire, then the Greeks, and later Rome. There was a short time of freedom, and again I put that in quotes, after the Greeks, but the Jewish leaders, rulers that they had, were just as bad or worse than any of the foreign rulers that they had had. In fact, it was a fight between two brothers, two royal Jewish brothers fighting for the throne, fighting for power, that resulted in the Roman army coming in and occupying the land of Israel decades before the first Christmas. So when you think about that first Christmas, times were difficult. Luke begins the Christmas story with an angel appearing to Zechariah, an elderly Jewish priest who was married but had no children. Zechariah lived in the hill country of Judea, we're told. And as a matter of fact, a good majority of the priests lived someplace other than Jerusalem. The priests were divided into groups and they took turns serving at the temple, and their service was much more than just the sacrificing of the animals. That was probably the largest thing, the most time they spent, but there were other things they did as well. And so each group had a rotation for when they would come to Jerusalem and serve at the temple, and it came time for Zechariah's group to serve. So he goes to Jerusalem, and one day during his time of service, Zechariah was chosen at random to go into the part of the temple called the Holy Place and burn incense to God. Now I won't go into detail now because we're going to look at Zechariah next week. The short version is that while Zechariah is alone in the holy place in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and told him that he and his wife would have a son in their old age. We know his son is John the Baptist. 
And Luke tells us that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, is related to a young woman named Mary. Well, about six months after the angel visited Zechariah, the same angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary, who lived in the village of Nazareth. Mary was engaged to Joseph, a carpenter, and we don't know for sure, but we guess that Mary was a teenager at that time. By the way, we also really don't know when Jesus was born. It was several hundred years after it started that the Christmas church chose December 25th. Well, the angel, when talking to Mary, told her that she's going to have a son who would be called the Son of God. The angel also told Mary that her relative Elizabeth was six months pregnant, so Mary went to visit Elizabeth, and Mary did what we do when, visit, when relatives come. Mary gets there, and she says hi to Elizabeth. When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, her baby, John, jumps in the womb. Elizabeth's response is a little bit different. We normally say hi back. Elizabeth blesses Mary, and it wasn't the old southern bless you. It was a real blessing. And our verses that we're going to read next are Mary's response, and it's often called the Magnificat. So this is Mary responding to all of what's happened. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Let's read. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. <clears throat> so after 400 years of silence we have supernatural events happening that silence meant no miracles from God no prophets from God to speak to the nation of Israel and then an angel from heaven appears twice in six months an elderly couple that is long past childbearing years has a baby something a little bit like Abraham and Sarah and a baby is supernaturally conceived in Mary's womb. And that baby is Jesus, who's both God and man. God is working out his plan. I wasn't going to say God is on the move, but actually, God's always on the move. He's always working. So let's look at our verses, but in a little bit different order than just straight down. We're going to look at the beginning, the end, and then the middle. We're going to follow this out outline. God knows us. God cares about us, and God is mighty. So first, verses 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary is worshiping God. When she says that she, her soul magnifies the Lord, that means she's talking about God's greatness. And you see that in, in what she says after that. She says that her spirit is rejoicing. She is delighting in God. And I was, as I was thinking about her response, I thought, you know what? She's doing, not doing something that you and I often do. She's not grumbling or complaining. She's not going, you know what, God? It's been 400 years. What took you so long? Okay, we would do that easily. You see, often without consciously thinking about it, you and I picture God incorrectly. Let me give you an example from one of the Psalms. In Psalm 50, the, whole, the Psalm centers on God correcting his people. And in verse 21, God's speaking to his people, and he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, or we would say, you thought you're just like me, that I'm just like you. But now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. You see, sometimes you and I think, well, we often think in terms of us. So when we think about God, we think about God in terms of us. Oh, yes, God is like me. He's just more powerful, and he knows more than I do. Not, not. God is our creator. We are his creatures. We're his creation. We are made in his image, and we have to add that we're broken and corrupted. God is infinitely greater than we are, infinitely wiser. Now, if you've done any science study, you know the symbol for infinity. It's a letter eight sideways, kind of sleeping. Okay? We can talk about infinity, but we really can't get our minds around it. That God is infinitely greater and wiser than we are. You see, Mary, in, in our verses, she's delighting in God. You see also that she's humble. And you know, there's an attractiveness to humility. The humble person is more self-forgetful and more others-focused. And she's right now at that point, at this point, just delighting in God. And Mary says that God looked upon her. God knew her and God blessed her. And when you see that word blessed in the Bible, it usually means talking about God doing good to her. Well, God knew Mary. God looks on us. He knows us as well. God is our creator, knows everything about us. Everything. And when you and I realize that God knows everything, including every selfish and dirty thing that we've ever done or thought, it makes the fact that God chooses to love us even more amazing. Because we realize we don't deserve it in the least. And notice that God calls Mary God my Savior. Why do we need a Savior? The Jews' biggest problem back in Mary's day, and our biggest problem isn't our circumstances, even though that's often what we think about. In fact, probably fair to say that's what we think about the most. Back then in Mary's day, I'm sure a lot of Jews were thinking, you know what, God, if you would just get rid of the Romans, life would be a whole lot better. We'd be good. Today, we've, I mean, the service already, 
has been this strange mix of the troubles we have, the troubles all around us, and then this praise of God. And for many of us, just kind of left to our own desires, it'd be, God, would you just get rid of all the troubles? Okay, can't you just make things better? That's not our biggest problem. Our pro biggest problem isn't our circumstances. Our biggest problem is our rebellion against God. You see, in our rebellion against God, not only do we break God's law, often that's what preachers talk about the most, it's sin. I remember hearing this story. It could very possibly be true. One Sunday, President Harry Truman went to church and his wife was at home. He comes back and says, well, what did the preacher talk about? Sin. And what did he say? Don't do it. We talk about sin, but why do we? Because often in our rebellion, we think we know better than God. So oh, my idea is better, so I'm going to do what I think I should do. In our rebellion, we refuse to worship God or acknowledge Him. In our rebellion, we have often chosen to put other people and things, actually most often ourselves, first in front of God when He deserves to be first. And God tells us that he's going to hold all of us accountable. And we have no way to make this right on our own. That is why we need somebody to save us. And God knows all of this because he knows us. But secondly, God cares about us. Look at verses 54 and 55 at the end. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary is remembering a promise that God made to Abraham when God introduced himself to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God said this to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I remember hearing a pastor one time try to make this a little bit more real. God comes to Abraham and he says all of these things. Abraham goes home and talks to Sarah. Sarah, you'll never believe what just happened. God just talked to me. And he wants us to leave. He wants us to leave, pack up and everything. Yep, pack up and everything and leave. Well, where are we going? I don't know. Well, when are we going to get there? I don't know that either. That's basically what God did. And Abraham did pack up and leave. And all these promises that we just read, God kept, including that last one. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That refers to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of other prophecies. As Mark Van Gilst mentioned, there's over 300 prophecies and pointers to Jesus in the Old Testament. Let's look at just one other one that we often Look at at Christmas time from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So 700 years before Jesus is born, God speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah writes this, that a child is going to be born, and that child is Jesus. And that child has a name, and one of the names he's given is God. So he's God and man. He's a ruler because he has a kingdom, and his is an eternal kingdom. And notice the last part of the, of the verse. God promises he will do this. The Christmas story begins the fulfillment of this prophecy. But notice in our verses too that Mary talks about God's mercy to us. Why do we need mercy? You and I need mercy because we deserve God's punishment for our rebellion. That's, the, that's what makes the good news good, the reality of, of where we are. You see, mercy is when you and I do not get what you deserve. God also, or Mary also talks about God's mercy in verse 50. That God's mercy is for those who fear him. Now, you and I, when we think of fear, we normally think of the idea of terror. I was going to say, when we think of fear, we think of being afraid. But that's redundant, because fear and afraid are connected. We think of terror. And when we're afraid with terror, what happens? If something is frightening us, we're going to pull away, right? We try to get away from it. Think about our natural response to God without God working in us. It is to run away from God. But there's another kind of fear, and you see it in the Bible. It's the fear of God. And it includes this sense of fear or terror, but the bigger part of this fear is Respect and admiration and amazement for God. With the fear of God, we're not trying to get away from God. We actually want to get closer. Because in this fear, God is attractive to us. We see his goodness. Now, I'm, I am positive C.S. Lewis had this idea in mind when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the first book, he has Lucy ask the question at the end, talking about Aslan, the lion, who's in, in that story, the, the figure of Jesus. Is he safe? And the response, well, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that combination, he's not safe, but he's good, gives you a sense of what the fear of God is. And God wants us to have this. Now, it's no accident at all that a couple of weeks ago, I just happened, and I put that in quotes, to find a book by Jerry Bridges called The Joy of Fearing God. Now, who puts joy and fear in the same title? Almost nobody. But it fits. The Joy of Fearing God. It's, I'm not done with it yet, but it's what I've read so far. It is really, really good. So God's help and his mercy isn't just for Abraham's physical descendants. It's for all of the people that God adopts as his spiritual children. So God knows us, and God cares about us. Third, God is mighty. This is the middle of the sandwich, if you want to say. Verses 49 to 53, and in verse 49, Mary says of God, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
And then in verses 51 to 53, we see this list of what God is doing. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. And he has sent the rich away empty. Let's look at those a little deeper. He's shown strength with his arm. In the, in the Bible, in Mary's day, the arm, when you talk about the arm, you, it's a picture of power. And you think about God's power. God created the universe just by speaking, and it came into being. God is the one that holds the universe together. I have a, a science and engineering background, and one of the things that scientists don't have an answer for is why it is that atoms don't go and fall apart because God holds them together. God tells us in the Bible, he's the one that raises up nations, and he's the one that brings them down. If you think of history as his story, as God's story of his acting, it takes the, oh, it just happened that way out of history. Why it is that this nation instead of this nation came to power, or this person instead of that person came to power. All of those things. God tells us that he delights in answering the prayers of his children. That is, he delights in acting on our behalf. And sometimes that looks like rescue as we're dealing with circumstances in our lives. And I don't know about you, but there's been a few times I've, I've thought, you know what, God, I could do with a little less rescue and a little bit more rose garden. Okay, just a little relaxed kind of thing. But God delights in answering our prayers and working on our behalf. But he doesn't always answer the way we expect. Remember, he's wiser than we are. And he's working out his plan for us. He doesn't tell us he's working out our plans. His plan. God tells us he is sovereign. He's the ruler over the universe, that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. Which means that God accomplishes all that he plans, and no one can interfere with what God, God plans. Second, we see that God scatters the proud. In the New Testament, God says he opposes the proud. Now, since we are all naturally proud in one way or another, that means that we're on God's bad side. Okay, and who wants, really, if you stop and think about it, I'm not saying this facetiously, who wants to be on God's bad side? Yet we all are. You see, in our pride, we do things like, I tell myself that I am more important than I really am. That I am more important than other people. I tell myself that I deserve, notice that word, I deserve everything that I desire. Sometimes I even say that I can accomplish whatever I think of. Now, all of us are proud. There's loud proud, and there's quiet proud. We're all somewhere on that spectrum, unless God begins to work in us. That's our natural default, somewhere to be there. Which means, when we are, God is against us in that way. Next, God brings down the mighty. God has been doing this all through history, and he's doing it today. As I said, nations he brings down, and people. Two examples from the Old Testament. When God tells Noah to build the ark, 
as you read the whole history from the Bible and put it all together, it takes Noah 100 years at least to build the ark, and you can't hide something that big in your backyard. Okay, it's like three stories tall, and it's humongous. And we're told that Noah preached to the people. And so people got the word. The word went around. God said he is going to flood the earth and, and destroy everything, but there, you have a, a chance to be rescued if you're willing to get on the boat. But only Noah and his family got on the boat. So after the flood is done, God is speaking to Noah and his family, and he says to them the same thing he said to Adam and Eve. Have children. Grow your families. Fill the earth. Spread out over all the earth. And so they begin having children, but they didn't, they didn't leave. They stayed in one place. They decided they were going to build a monument for themselves. And so God scatters them. And then I mentioned Babylon. God used the Babylonian people and the Babylonian army to bring the nation of Israel into exile. And God actually said ahead of time that he was going to do this. He talked to the prophet Habakkuk. And if you, re if you read the book of Habakkuk, it's short. It's only three chapters. Habakkuk begins by complaining. <laughs> he's looking at the situation in, in Israel, and he's saying, God, this is horrible. Why aren't you doing something? And, and surprise of surprises, God answers him. I'm going to. I'm going to use the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's response, that's a terrible idea, God. They're worse than we are. And God says, I'm going to use them, but they're going to be, they're going to do, they're going to bring the people of Israel into exile, but they're going to do it out of their pride. And so I'm going to deal with them for their pride. And so then you get into the actual story of what happens. The king who God uses is Nebuchadnezzar. And he knows Daniel, if you've ever read the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, you see that God deals with Nebuchadnezzar with his pride. And so all of a sudden, he's off the throne for seven years before he's restored. And when he is restored, he worships God. But the whole nation, the empire, God says, I'm going to deal with them and their pride. Well, one of the kind of the greatest things they had was the city of Babylon. It was huge. They had the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's one of the, we call it now one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They, they had, there was this huge city with these huge walls big enough. The top of the wall was big enough to have chariot races on. They were so certain that they were good to go. Nobody could touch them. And the city was taken in one night. He took them down. Today, the entire world is struggling with COVID. And it has brought nations to their knees. All kinds of problems and situations that we have, among many other things. So God brings down the mighty. God exalts the humble. Humility comes in part from seeing ourselves and the world through God's eyes through what God tells us in the Bible. God tells us that as God's creatures, we are dependent upon him. And true humility comes as God's spirit works in us, because again, it's not natural to us. And as God's spirit works, we agree with God about our need for God and our need for God to work in our lives. And God says that he raises up the humble. 
Sometimes he does it in terms of bringing the humble up to positions of prominence, but often not. I mean, often God raises the humble in ways that we don't recognize. But the humble person trusts God and can rest in God's goodness even when everything around them is a mess. Then God says he filled the hungry. You know, God is the one who makes food grow, not the farmer. Farmer is the worker. God's the one who makes it grow. But more important than physical food is spiritual food, spiritual life and comfort. And just as God was the one that, that came in the garden looking for Adam and Eve, God is the one who came to Noah and chose him. God is the one that came to Abraham and chose him. You see the pattern. God is the one that comes to us. And when God comes to us and begins a relationship, he puts his spirit on us, in us, and making us a Christian. And that spirit is then closer than our very breath. And so, regardless of the circumstance, a Christian has God's promise of his presence and his love here on earth. And then the promise, too, that one day we're going to be done with all the brokenness and the mess. And it will be gone. There's one other contrast with physical hunger and spiritual. It's not a good idea to stay physically hungry. Okay, it usually means you're not eating enough, okay, which is going to hurt your body. But it is good to stay spiritually hungry. It's, now, this is a horrible analogy, but you know, having God in a relationship is almost like a healthy kind of cotton candy. Okay, cotton candy, regular stuff, it's not good for you. Okay, you can eat it, and just a few minutes later, you, you're hungry again. Okay, you want more. Okay, spiritual food, spiritual uh, connection with God, it, the idea is, I can't get enough. God, I know you. I know you some, but I want to know you more. You've, God, I can see how you worked over here in this situation in my life. I'm, I'm hoping and praying you're going to work here. I want, to, I want to see how you work here, and we want more and more. And then finally, God sends the rich away empty. Now, contrary to what some people say, even in some churches, God is not against riches because he's the one who gives riches. But he tells us he can also take them away. And the whole, <clears throat> I believe the whole idea here is that we should not trust in our riches we should be trusting in God. And, and some people have, have even called wealth and affluence a curse. Okay? It's just as dangerous as poverty. Sometimes in, in some ways even more dangerous because you don't recognize your need anymore. Physically you can get whatever you want. But you, and so you kind of can gloss over your spiritual need. Well, this list of what God uh, describes isn't just what God was going to do during Jesus' lifetime. As I've tried to make the point today, he's, he's done it through history, and he's still doing it today. And notice again that God is the one who's acting. He's the one who has the power. He's the one that scatters the proud and brings down the mighty and raises up the humble. God is the one who's acting. He's intimately involved in life on this earth. So this Christmas... Let's thank God that even before he created the world, he had planned the first Christmas and the first Christmas gift, and then he gave it to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this first song, this first 
these words that you gave Mary as she was worshiping you and thinking of your goodness, thinking of your greatness. Lord, would you remind us that you are intimately involved, intimately working every day. Lord, help us to see and help us to give you thanks. Help us to recognize we need you. And you promise your presence and your work in the lives of all of your children. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song.